Colossians chapter 2. I'm grateful to be back in the pulpit today after three weeks away. And uh, also grateful for faithful shepherds who care for God's church uh, when I'm not around. Um, and uh, when I am around, actually, uh, they, our elders uh, do a wonderful job. And I'm so thankful as well for Skipper and for Pastor Guy uh, and their ministry of the word. And just just thankful for what God is doing here at Indian Creek to raise up leaders so that we can uh, be a, a, a church family that uh, represents Christ well in our community. And so I just want to say how thankful I am for you and for our elders and, and just my heart is full. I'm thankful for our missionaries as well. I'm going to talk more about that at another time because I don't want to take away from the message today. If you're our guest, uh, you should know our, our typical practice is to go paragraph by paragraph through a biblical book. We just, at the end of last year, finished up 1 Corinthians. Uh, and then uh, next week, we plan to uh, go through a, a study, a brief study, uh, in the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament. Uh, but before we do that, uh, there is something uh, that, that I believe we need to address as a church that is particularly relevant to the time in which we find ourselves. And it's a heavy topic, but I think it's a necessary topic to address, and that is the topic of abortion. Uh, so uh, what we want to do today is understand at least some of the things that God, God's Word has to say about this heavy, difficult topic. So with that being said, uh, let's go ahead and turn our attention to Colossians chapter 2, and we'll read the first 10 verses. Speaking to a church situated in a world given over to the lies of the enemy, Paul offers this admonition. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding of the and, and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments for though I am absent in body yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ therefore as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. 
Would you join me in prayer? Father, we praise you for exalting your son to be the supreme sovereign ruler of all things. Not only of this church, but of this entire universe. Not only of those who bow the knee in faith, but even of those who push back in rebellion. Father, we want to pause this morning and recognize that Jesus is king, that Christ is Lord. It's not, it's not for us to shape a Christianity in our own image and after our own tastes and our own desires. It's for us merely to say, Christ, whatever you want. That is what we want to And so, Father, I pray that even in this difficult, emotionally charged topic, that you would cause your people today to be submissive to you and trusting of you, knowing that you are far kinder, far wiser, far more righteous than anyone in the world. Help us to trust you and to do your will today. Lord, you charge us in your word to lift up in prayer kings, rulers, and all those who are in authority because there is only one mediator between God and men, and that's Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we pray for our nation's president, the cabinet, the legislature, the judicial branch, our state government, our local government. And Father, we ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, open the eyes of each one of the individuals who occupy these positions to recognize that you love the world and sent your Son so that all who believe might not perish but have everlasting life. And Lord, I pray that you would use us in whatever way you see fit to preach that message and to display that truth in our lives and to begin to do that even now in this moment. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Just over 50 years ago, on January 22nd, 1973, the United States Supreme Court handed down one of the most consequential decisions in its long history, creating essentially out of thin air the so-called right for a mother to end the life of her unborn child. It took a little while for believers to realize what was going on and to organize in opposition to this perverse state of affairs on the matter of abortion, the United States had become one of the least safe places to be an unborn child among all Western first first world nations. And it stayed this way for decades. Until finally, on June 24th of 2022, the court reversed that decision. Most Christians celebrated. But I have to be honest, I personally didn't really think it was ever going to happen, so I was sort of unprepared for what would come next. Maybe you find yourself in the same situation, and it's been over a year, and a new normal is starting to emerge, and I have to say... I find it alarming. 
To my surprise, nearly every time the topic of abortion has been referred to voters over the last year, the citizens of the United States have come out in favor of abortion. It would seem that many of our neighbors, many professing Christians, find abortion distasteful, but want it to remain an option just in case. By the way, I'm not talking about the coastal elites. I'm talking about places like Ohio. I've been to Ohio. It's as conservative a place as you could ever imagine. And yet even there, abortion holds sway. What's more, you can take it to the bank that you're going to hear the word abortion as much in the next year as you ever have in your life. Are you ready for that? Pundits agree that if President Biden and his colleagues down the ticket are going to secure victory in the 2024 election, then they are going to have to come out even more strongly in support of the right to have an abortion. In fact, the, the president's being told by pollsters that if he really wants to win, he's going to have to use that word more. Left-leaning Americans are terrified that they're going to lose the right to have an abortion. On the other side of the aisle, a whole different set of experts are saying that conservatives need to compromise on this issue if they're going to have any hope of winning an election themselves. Pay attention to the rhetoric it's shifting. I'm not trying to be an alarmist or a conspiracy theorist, but we do need to keep our eyes open. Pro-abortion advocates have cranked up their efforts. You know what you see? If you go to your computer, your laptop, and you type in to Google lies about abortion, you know what you see? Article after article after article saying that people like me, preachers, conservative teachers of the Bible are lying to you about abortion. We're saying things like, when you have an abortion, it kills a baby. And they're saying, that's a lie. I mean, these folks are on offense. That all has to do with policy. It's easy to get overwhelmed with the political stuff, but this affects where we live today. In a room this size, I know it's affected dozens of you in one way or another or will in the next few years. And I, I just have a couple of questions. What are you going to do, Dad? When your teenage daughter comes home and tells you she's pregnant, what are you going to say, young man, when you fall and you stumble in sexual sin and then a month later you get a text message from your girlfriend that knocks the wind out of you? And if you're a woman or a teenage girl, I imagine you've already thought about a number of possible scenarios. When it affects you personally, are you going to act in accordance with the teachings of God's word, or are you going to do what you think might be easier in the moment? Recently, I was convicted by this thought. Moms have to talk about these things with their daughters. Teenagers talk about these things at lunch with their friends at school. And Christian teenagers have to bring God's word to bear into those conversations. And as a pastor, I hope that when you have those conversations, you summon courage and compassion and wisdom and grace. But how can I ask you to do that if I'm not willing to go on record myself? If I'm not willing to equip you, that's why we're doing this today. That's why we're observing a sort of sanctity of life Sunday. A little late, but we're doing it. Because you need to know what God's word has to say about this topic. And especially as the year wears on, you need to be ready for the powerful, plausible 
arguments that will assail you. Paul tells us we need to be ready for people to try to delude you with plausible arguments. We need to be aware that they're going to try to take us captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And so today, I'm not going to talk about everything related to this topic. I want to focus in on just three, three battlegrounds that you're going to find yourself on over the next year, I'm sure, related to this topic of abortion. Three ways in which Satan and his armies may even now be constructing a stronghold that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Notice battleground number one, the consistency of our witness, the consistency of our witness. I'll explain what I mean by that. Essentially, what I've heard or read is something like this. Christians are only pro-life when it comes to unborn children. But when, when it comes to the matter of the homeless or the unhoused, poor families who experience food insecurity, the elderly for those who do not have parents, for those experiencing war, they do not care about life. Christians are hypocrites, so therefore you can dismiss the pro-life position. I'm sure you've heard this. Even Christians have said something like this to me. And it's understandable to a point because it often seems as though the most vocal political types are the ones who do the least to help. Have you found that that's sometimes the case? And so the people in the trenches get frustrated and they air those frustrations even on social media. You know what I'm talking about. Don't say you're pro-life Don't say you care about babies unless you are willing to be a foster parent or fund someone's adoption or spend time volunteering with a ministry like Grace House. It's a powerful argument, isn't it? Foster care, orphan care, ministry to young single moms, that's a hard thing to do. The deeper you go into these types of ministries, the more overwhelming the need becomes, the greater your compassion grows, but then you're stuck with the reality. I'm only one person, and I go to church with hundreds who don't seem to be doing anything. They're going on vacation, they're spending money on themselves, they're living it up, they have free time. They don't see that these kids and these families desperately need them. They aren't pro-life, they're hypocrites. And sometimes we're so upset about it that we're willing to put down our brothers and sisters in front of a watching world. Don't say anything about abortion until you've been involved, you hypocrites. Now, there's a very strong point to be made from Scripture that as believers, we ought to put our money where our mouth is when it comes to topics like this one. You remember what James says in James chapter 1 about pure religion? What's pure religion? It's to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. It's not just talking the talk, it's walking the walk. It's, it's, uh, the, the fact is the, that a lot of professing Christians are kind of selfish and hypocritical. I feel that. It's tough fielding complaints from church members who aren't willing to pitch in. I can't imagine how difficult it is when it comes to the difficult work of caring for the most vulnerable. But there are two things that you need to keep in mind when it comes to this type of attack on Christian faith and practice, this idea that Christians are hypocrites and therefore they aren't really pro-life and therefore abortion should be legal. The first thing to keep in mind is that across the broad spectrum of life, it's just not true. 
It's just not true that Christians don't care about orphans and widows and strangers and the unhoused. Think about our own community. There are non-Christians who give their time to support vulnerable populations, of course. But the vast majority of those who are investing their time and their talents and their treasure into supporting life in all of its manifestations are those who do so out of a conviction that the Lord has saved them from sin and therefore they need to serve others. You can draw a bold, straight line between the most effective community services and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are so grateful for the fact that Jesus laid down his life on the cross for them, taking away their sin, granting them eternal life even though they could never earn it, giving them the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the inheritance that we can all look forward to in the new creation, that they gladly give up their energy their time, their hard-earned money to minister to the weak, the voiceless across a whole spectrum of life. That's not a brag. That's just a fact. And it's not just a mineral wells. This holds true around the entire world. Most modern people believe that it's wrong to just leave a baby by the side of the road. But that's not necessarily how people have thought down through the ages. The reason most people think that is because Christians have spoken up for those who don't have a voice for so many centuries. Christians started the first hospitals, the first orphanages. Christians have been the driving force behind all the humanitarian progress in the West. And I know that's a bold claim, and you can research it for yourself and find that it is the case. If we compare the influence of Christianity to the influence of competing worldviews, it might not be in good taste to say, but there is no question that without the teachings of the Bible, the world would be much more terrifying, much more evil, much more dangerous for the weak and the vulnerable than it currently is. So this impulse to say, shut up, Christians, you hypocrites. You're not really pro-life, therefore abortion should be legal is absolutely unfounded. But a second thing that you need to understand about this particular battleground is that not only is it untrue to say that Christians don't care about life outside the womb, it's also completely irrelevant. We've got to keep our eye on the ball when it comes to the delusions and the plausible arguments and the strongholds of the world. It's a shell game. Christians are hypocrites, therefore we should allow abortion to be legal. Whether Christians are consistent in their witness or not is irrelevant to the question of whether it's immoral to kill an unborn child. Whether it ought to be outlawed by our state or our nation. Whether Christians help out at Grace House Ministries or become foster parents is irrelevant to the question of whether abortion ought to be illegal. The question of abortion has nothing to do with whether Christians are willing to take care of those unwanted children. If it's wrong to kill a baby, it's wrong to kill a baby, period. I don't need to be, by the way, I don't need to be a woman to say that. It's not a matter of who's saying it. It's just a matter of fact. Do not be carried away by every breeze of teaching. Do not be deluded by the plausible arguments of the world. Keep your eye on the ball. 
Don't let people appeal to your sense of inadequacy. You will never feel sufficient to the task of caring for the unborn. Never. But the question of whether it's right or not to kill a child doesn't have anything to do with what you personally do with your time. I affirm without apology the conviction of Psalm 139. God, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. There is infinite value in that little everlasting soul growing in the womb. And that's true regardless of whether or not Christians do anything about it. So that's battleground number one. The consistency of our witness, you will find that that's addressed over the next year. And I want us to be able to think clearly and biblically about it. Uh, Battleground number one, the consistency of our witness. Battleground number two, having to do with compassion for victims of abuse. Compassion for victims of abuse. And again, we're just addressing some specific things that I think you'll see come up in conversation over the next year. Let me explain why this topic of compassion for victims of abuse is going to occupy the center of a lot of conversation about abortion. In the past, the conversation, at least as I've been exposed to it, has been around the topic of abortion on demand because the United States is one of, was one of the most radically uh, committed countries to this right, so-called right to abortion, this idea that you could just go whenever you want to have an abortion, uh, it, it, it put the United States outside in a more radical position than just about any other country in the world. That ended up being the topic of conversation. Well, now in a post-Roe v. Wade world, the conversation has shifted necessarily to the marginal cases and especially instances in which a young woman may have been the victim of rape or incest. Surely, they say, a compassionate approach would be to allow victims of rape to seek an abortion. This young girl has been raped. Don't add to her suffering by forcing her to give birth to her rapist's child. We live in a, a sordid world. I have three daughters. I get very upset if they suffer the, the least injustice. I cannot imagine dealing with this scenario. And yet we know, if statistics are any indication, that even in this room, many girls and women have found themselves the victim of abuse or even rape. It's not a stat that's your experience the last thing that I would want to do is to add to your suffering. But let me urge you not to make this type of allowance in your mind. There are two problems with saying that abortion should be legal in cases of rape or incest. The first problem is a practical problem. When you make that exception, then you have to decide on a case-by-case basis whether to apply that exception in that particular case. In other words, somebody somewhere is going to have to decide whether that really happened, whether that young woman was really raped. And none of us would want to be in that position, right? This is exactly why pro-choice advocates are pro-choice, 
because they say that woman ought to be the only person to decide. We ought to just go off of her word. Understandable, right? Otherwise, some doctor or a court or a governing body is going to have to decide. And you know it takes months to get justice in these situations. And most of the time, these guys get off scot-free. Talk about adding to someone's suffering. That's just not practical. So basically, from a practical standpoint, if you allow for abortion in these exceptional cases, you've already given away the whole position, practically. Because determining the truth in these instances and the time frame necessary to make a decision is just, frankly, impossible. So you're essentially taking a pro-choice stance at this point, and that's the problem practically. But there's not just a practical problem with this battleground. There's a deeper problem. It's not so much a practical problem as it is a moral problem. And that is, to put it simply, that being a victim of a heinous, unspeakable crime is nevertheless not a justification to kill another human being. Being forced into an unthinkable situation does not justify killing another human being. There are two victims in these cases. One is a woman, the other is a baby. Yes, it changes the course of your life in profound, irreversible ways. But the solution is not to destroy another person. That child bears the image of God, the design of the creator. It is wrong to kill him. It's wrong to kill her. That child deserves the protection of the law, just like you and I do. As believers, we must not allow our compassion for a young woman to negate the value of a tiny baby. I don't like to talk about that, but we have to. That's battleground number two. Number one, the consistency of our witness. Number two, compassion for victims of abuse. You're going to hear that brought up. Battleground number three, care for the severely handicapped. Care for the severely handicapped. You're going to have this come up too in the next year, and I want you to be equipped from the word of God. Here's a specific argument I've heard recently that I want to address. What if the child has a life-limiting diagnosis like trisomy 18 where his body parts are severely deformed and he's unlikely to live more than a few hours outside of the womb. Wouldn't the compassionate thing be to just end it right then and there? There was a case like this about two months ago in the Dallas area. A woman had been given the tragic news that her unborn child was severely handicapped She sought an abortion, eventually had to travel outside the state to get it done. Again, we live in a world, friends, that is just torn to pieces, suffering, unspeakable tragedy because of the sin that leaves our creation, leaves creation under a curse. 
These are the realities that many parents face. But for most Americans who are not Christians, the solution in cases like this, excruciating though it may be, is very simple. Of course it's appropriate to seek an abortion in that case. At the very least, it should be the mom's decision, not some government body. I mean, if you're not a Christian, you probably have a tough time seeing it any other way. And what I want to point out is that the reason why this is, the reason why this is the case, why you can't see how it's compassionate to bring that pregnancy to full term, is because of deep underlying worldview, basic, fundamental beliefs and values that the average American embraces. In fact, you might, you might not even realize that this is the way you think because it's sort of like the air you breathe or the water that you swim in. It's just all around you. For many, many people living in the modern world, we have come to believe that human beings are not creatures designed by God, but advanced animals who exist as the product of millions of years of chance, mutation, and natural selection. Why are we the way that we are? Many people would say because of the accidents and the chance circumstances of physics and chemistry and chaos, that's it. Why do you have 10 fingers and 10 toes? Because of the evolutionary process over the last billions of years. That's why you have taste buds on your tongue. That's why you have an emotional bond between you and your parents or you and your kids. All of it, all of who you are from a metaphysical standpoint is simply the product of trillions of tiny accidents. So the question is, do any of us have any value at all? And some people would say, no, uh, this idea of value is an illusion. But for most people, most Americans, we've bought into a sort of cope where we accept as fact this idea that we're all just sort of a bag of chemicals. And yet our value is real because our value is not based on what we are physically. Our value is based on what we decide ourselves to be. There's nothing inherently valuable about human beings, sure, but we create our own value. We create our own identity. You be you, you do what you want to do. You believe what you want to believe. Don't hold back. Don't suppress it because you, the real you, exist in the expression of your preferences and your taste and your values and your deepest desires. That's who you are. And the only sin, the only sin in this scheme is to suppress those desires or to try to get somebody else to suppress somebody else's desires. That is a powerful, compelling, common way to look at us as human beings. Many, many, many of your neighbors think that way, and you may even have bought into some of these things, these ways of thinking yourself. Are you gay? Well, then you'd better live that out because that's who you are. If you push back against that, you're essentially killing yourself. Are you a guy trapped in a female body? Then you'd better live that out. Anybody who tries to stop you is assaulting the core of who you are. Whatever you most strongly feel and think is who you are. You have no intrinsic value outside of that. That's where your identity is located. So, okay, kind of deep, but what does it have to do with this topic? 
Here's the point. You know who doesn't have the capacity, the capability to express their values, interests, desires, tastes, and preferences? Unborn babies. Those with severe mental handicaps. They're just too young or they're too unable if they have a disability of some kind. That child, that fetus or embryo or blastocyst, whatever term makes you feel better about thinking this way, has no self-awareness or self-understanding. And so even though he or she is a human being, they're not strictly speaking a person. In fact, ethicists like Peter Singer have famously said that a pig or a dog is more of a person than an unborn child. Let me ask you a question. Do you, whether you're a Christian or not, do you really believe that a human being is less of a person because their brain doesn't function as well as your brain functions? Because they're smaller than you? Because they can't communicate their thoughts or desires? Because their life is difficult and they experience extreme pain? Are they less? Do you really want to say that their life isn't worth living because it won't last as long as yours? Why is a life that lasts a few hours or a few days worth less than one that lasts 50 years or 100 years or whatever? And who are we to say? Advocating for abortion in these cases requires that we start ranking the value of human life. Do you really want to do that? And that makes sense if you believe that human beings are just the product of random chance. But do you really want to say that your life is more valuable than somebody else's life? I I know you don't. Here's what the Bible teaches. I know this is basic and I go back to this often, but this is so important and it's, it's the battleground on which so many of the controversies of our day end up being fought. Remember Genesis chapter one? What does it say? God created human beings in his own image. Think about that. Have you spent time meditating on that fact, that reality that you and every other human being in existence is created in the image of the creator? It's indescribably awesome. And that means that our value and our purpose and our identity is not something that we determine for ourselves. You don't say who you are. God says who you are. He's the one. And what you are and what that unborn baby is, is a creature designed to image God. None of us perfectly images God. We're all marred and imperfect, but that doesn't mean we stop bearing the image of God when we display those imperfections. We are created in God's image, and that's, that goes the same for every single human being in the world. In the womb, we're out of it. According to Genesis 9... God values each human being so much that to take a human life is a capital crime. 
It's an assault against God himself. According to Proverbs 24, we are required to speak up for those who bear that value but cannot speak up for themselves. I realize there are people here today who are not Christians, and I'm glad you're here. I really am so glad you're here. I, the last thing I want to do is offend you unnecessarily. I don't want to limit the chance that you'll come back to Indian Creek Baptist Church. I don't want to turn you off from hearing the good news and believing in Jesus and giving your life to Christ. That's my sincere desire for you, is that you would embrace Christ. But I want to challenge you to think about two things. These are really important for you to understand. First of all, understand that the Jesus of the Bible, the real one, not one we make up, but the one who really exists, he is going to confront the way you think. And he's going to do it in ways that may bother you. And that's his right. Why would you expect any different? He demands all of your allegiance. He wants all of you. You may as well learn that now. But secondly, think about it. Don't you see the goodness, the beauty of the fact that God values each and every life? You don't have to be bigger than somebody else, smarter than somebody else, lead a longer life than somebody else, be stronger than somebody else in order to have a meaningful, purposeful, valuable life in order for God to care about you like he cares about other people, in order for him to think that you have worth. Every human person is a person made in God's image. That's true no matter where you live. That's true no matter what your gender is. That's true regardless of whether you can support yourself or not. That's true whether you suffer more than others. God, listen, sees you. God values you. God made you for a good reason. And that baby with a chromosomal anomaly, the trisomy 18, the genetic malformation, the severe handicap, God sees that child too. God values that child too. God designed that child too. And one day, according to the Bible, this is wonderful. We're going to see. We're going to understand his purposes and his plans. Whether you live for five minutes or 50 years or 100. We're going to look back on that, that time and we're going to realize really the difference between the five minutes and the 100 years, it really wasn't that much in light of eternity. I'm here to tell you that God so loved the world, the world with all its evil, not just that he would give us another chance, not just that he would let us live a little bit longer, not just so that he would give us a chance to like earn our salvation, but he loved the world so much that he actually sent his only son into this evil world to bear the sins of sinners and to invite sinners to believe in him so that we would not perish but have everlasting life. 
And when this life gives way to that life, that new creation, we will begin to see things from God's perspective and we'll see that every single person has a purpose and a plan. Years ago, friends of ours came to our Sunday school class. As we were taking prayer requests, they began to cry. They said, we just came from the doctor this week and our baby boy, due in just a few months, is severely malformed. His organs are out of place. His bones are crooked. Some of them are missing. Who knows what else is wrong? They'd been given the option to end his little life, but there was never a question in their mind. Come what may, they were going to care for their child no matter what. We wept together. We grieved. We sat silently. We cried out to God. We wondered why. We begged for another outcome. But in the middle of the crucible, our friends believed God enough to act on their faith. Today, their son, after dozens of surgeries, many sleepless nights in a children's hospital, is a wonderful elementary school student. He's a miracle. You can tell he's been through a lot just by looking at him. But not even the cruelest person on earth would argue that his life is worthless. Other stories have ended differently. I acknowledge that. There's an organization in the DFW area called Able Speaks that supports families whose children receive these life-limiting diagnoses and tell their stories. These precious babies, without exception, are worth it. They have value in the eyes of God. And who are we to say their life is not worth living? I'm not talking about prolonging suffering. I'm not talking about preventing a natural death at all costs. I'm just saying that we have no right to kill an innocent person to avoid our own emotional pain. Here's the point. The enemy is not on break. He's not interested in compromise. Do you realize that? He's not willing to compromise with you. He will offer compromise. But the moment you give it to him, he's going to move the goalpost. He isn't going to leave this topic alone. He is going to assault you from any and every angle. He's going to tell you it's not fair to women. It's not worth the risk. It's not right for you to meddle in somebody else's business. He's going to accuse you of anything and everything. Hypocrisy. He's going to appeal to your sense of compassion and concern because he's got one thing on his mind and he'll do whatever it takes to get it. He hates God and he sees you and that means he's seeing the image of God and when he sees the image of God, he wants it gone so he's going to kill as many human beings as he possibly can. He hates the image of God. But as believers, we cannot listen to the lies of the enemy. We must be wise in Christ. We cannot embrace the plausible arguments of the world. We cannot countenance the philosophies and the empty deceptions of the flesh. Every human being has value, value that is worth protecting. So church, let's make a commitment. Let's recommit ourselves to fighting for every human life. Let's recommit to speaking up for those who do not have a voice. Let's recommit to casting down imaginations and every high and lofty thought that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. 
And let's never accept defeat. Let's be willing to conquer, to overcome, not with physical weapons, not against a human enemy, but with the word of our testimony, the knowledge that we've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Let's fight for our neighbors, not against them, for them, and let's oppose the enemy, knowing that we will be victorious. Would you pray with me now? God, thank you for giving us the grace to consider this extremely difficult topic. We are overwhelmed by just the suffering that we see in the world. The seeming gratuitousness of it, the seemingly randomness of it. The reality that it falls on children, young girls. We grieve for our world. And we come before you knowing that you are a God with a depth of compassion unlike any we can muster ourselves. And, and so, Father, I pray that you would equip us to fight against your ancient enemy and to fight for our neighbors and to speak up for those who cannot speak on their own behalf. And Lord, I, I pray that you would go a little bit further and that you would show each individual here what's one thing I can do? What's one thing I can do to fulfill this commission? I pray that you would show us that even in this moment, Father. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.